As a member of Donald Trump's National Security Council, Fiona Hill was a key figure, coordinating policy toward Vladimir Putin's Russia. As such, she had a bird's-eye view of a strange dynamic that played out throughout the Trump years, the repeated and seemingly inexplicable sympathy that the U.S. president had for the authoritarian Russian leader, culminating in a disastrous press conference in Helsinki, during which Trump made clear that when it came to Russian interference in the 2016 election, he believed Putin over the unanimous conclusions of U.S. intelligence agencies. For Hill, it was a low point, prompting her, she writes in her new book, There Is Nothing For You Here, to consider faking a seizure and hurling herself back into a row of journalists in order to stop the humiliating spectacle. But was this evidence that Trump was being controlled by Moscow because they had compromise on him? Or was this a more revealing glimpse into the psyche of a U.S. president who envied Putin for his wealth, his power, and his ability to run Russia as he sees fit? Precisely how Trump dreamed of running America. We'll talk to Hill about this and her fears for the future of American democracy on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. You know, it's hard to um, remember, but it was just two years ago. We're coming up on the second year anniversary of the impeachment hearings the, of for the first impeachment of Donald Trump, in which Fiona Hill became known to the American public as one of the witnesses who was at the NSC at the time that uh, Trump was uh, pressuring the Ukrainian President Zelensky to do him a favor and launch an investigation of Joe Biden. And Hill clearly made a big impression there as a sober-minded, learned, erudite scholar, really. She'd written a book about Putin she knew as much about Russia as anybody in the room. And, um, you know, the kind of person who was being forced out under Donald Trump's presidency because she didn't survive much longer on the National Security Council. I think one of the things that's really interesting kind of coming up on the second anniversary of her testimony is that for at least the last four or five years, we've tended to view our relationship with Russia through the lens of Trump's relationship with Putin. And with Trump now having left the stage, we have to kind of back off and re-examine how we're interacting with Russia. And I think one of the things that Fiona Hill is so good at and is so interesting at is warning us that just because the Trump-Putin dynamic is over, it doesn't mean that the kind of the need to study and understand what's going on with Putin and Russia isn't urgent isn't urgent because it's also in some respects uh, happening here in this yeah. country, right? I mean, I think what's really fascinating about her book, her memoir, and we have read and, and talked on this podcast about a lot of insider accounts of the Trump years, and uh, this is really nothing like any of them, starting with the title of the book, which is There Is Nothing For You Here, which is a reference to what her father told her when she was 
a young woman um, having grown up in this the northeast of England in this coal mining town in, that was in decline, suffused with you know a kind of hopelessness and you know cultural despair. Um, and he was saying to her, "You need to leave this place and go uh, and get an education and and make your way." in the world, in, in a place where there's opportunity. And what she does in this book, which is so interesting, is really connect all of these foreign policy threads, Putin, the rise of populism and authoritarianism in places like Hungary and Russia and and uh, in parts of Latin America, to what's going on in this country and the, the forces that led uh, to the rise of Donald Trump. And if we don't deal with those issues, whether it's you know opportunity for education, good jobs for working people, bringing back some measure of dignity in their lives, we are going to be continuing on this really dangerous path uh, that we're on. And it's a very interesting account. And scholarly, I think, is the word you use at Sakoff. I mean, she really right. is. So I'm, I'm right. really looking forward to this right. conversation. And, and one thing that struck me in reading the book is, you know, just how many striking parallels there are between the rise of Putin and authoritarianism in Russia and some of the events in, in this country, the cult of personality around Putin, the demonization of political foes, uh, the spread of uh, disinformation and conspiracy theories, uh, which, uh, you know, the Russians perfected and originally sort of, you know, sort of road tested with their intervention in Ukraine and the seizure of Crimea. And of course, you know, the oligarchs, plutocracy, uh, awarding uh, benefits to your um, wealthy political supporters, something that, uh, you know, Putin perfected and Trump tried to do, and, and Trump did. Yeah, it turns out Russian, Russia isn't just necessarily a foreign adversary. It maybe is a, a kind of a mirror or a roadmap of exactly yeah. what's going on. And just to events. connect it to this particular moment in the news, I mean, Washington is completely obsessed with uh, these two big parts of the Biden domestic agenda that, you know, they're trying to get across the finish line, uh, the infrastructure, the hard infrastructure bill and this social spending bill. And when Biden talks about the importance of these issues, he does put it in the context of democracy. These are the kinds of things that we need to do to save our democratic system. And the idea that democracy can still deliver for the citizenry, because that idea that is being questioned all over well, the world. Or, or by more the Chinese, broadly, but, can it work? Can it function? Right. Can democracy still you and, know, well, function? But, 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 that, but delivering to the people is part of what makes it work. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can get contrarian on that. I don't, th I don't think the voters who elected Joe Biden were primarily thinking about everything that's in the build better back, whatever it's called these days. But that's you a can discussion get contrarian for another day. On just yeah, about yeah. anything, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. That's, that's, um, that's your charm. All right. Well, <laughs> at least that's anyway, what we're saying is your charm. It's his superpower. I, yeah, I can do superpower. that with you guys, but we've got a real scholar on the podcast today. So why don't we listen to her? Let's get to it. We now have with us Fiona Hill, author of the new book, There is Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Fiona Hill is one of the country's foremost experts on Vladimir Putin and uh, Russia. It's a subject we want to delve into on this podcast. Fiona, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. 
So I uh, remember reading your book some years ago about Putin, Mr. Putin operative in the Kremlin, your previous book. And, um, you know, we spent a lot of time during the Trump years trying to figure out the puzzle of Trump's relationship with Russia, with his admiration of Putin, and what Putin was up to, what his game was, which uh, is something has never really been uh, fully understood. And you understand this as, as well as anybody. So I just want to start out with your sense of Vladimir Putin's goals in his dealings with the West. You know, we've seen this, you know, these aggressive measures, the attack on the 2016 election, of course, and many other efforts by his regime to undermine Western democracy. What's Putin after? Well, in a simple, very straightforward sense, Putin's after staying in power himself at home in Russia. And he's also after, as a corollary to that, maximizing Russia's room for maneuverability, you know, kind of basically making sure that he can always press Russia's interests. And for him, that basically means trying to kind of weaken any kind of organizational uh, or networks that would be pushing back against him. And also on another, you know, fairly straightforward level, as somebody who is at the center of a corrupt kleptocratic clique, it's one of those great things to say, corrupt kleptocratic clique, <laughs> you know, rather than just at the, you know, the head of a, of a government of a major power, uh, Putin wants to make the world a lot safer and more hospitable for people like himself. So, you know, the less good governance is, there is around, you know, the more corruption, the less transparency, you know, the kind of less uh, there is of institutional arrangements to push back, all the better. And so, you know, the, the whole uh, premise of Putin's actions is to, you know, as you're saying, is to undermine the West, uh, the Western institutions, to show the West up as being full of hubris and, you know, kind of, there's always this moral equivalency, who's worse, who's better, well, we're all just the same, aren't we? And, you know, basically to call us out on every occasion for trying to be holier than thou, you know, better than him. And his, his viewpoint is everyone's just the same. And democracy or world politics are just about who pays the most and who shouts the loudest. And Putin wants to kind of, you know, basically ensure that wherever something is happening that might impinge on Russia's interests on his, that he's right there at the table having a say. There are two particular controversies at the moment that are on the table that have been a source of great tension from, you know, even during this administration. In fact, one can argue it's even greater in this administration. And one is the cyber attacks and the ransomware and whether or not this is something that he controls or condones, and if so, how does it serve his interests? And the other one, and I'm really interested in your take on this, is the Havana syndrome, which mm -hmm. seems to mm -hmm. be, you know, these strange attacks, radioactive attacks on American diplomats around the world, which it's believed may be emanating from the Russians Give us your take on both of those fronts, um, where if this is something that Putin is actively doing or condoning, and if so, why? How does it serve his interests? So look, we know, first of all, that Putin rose to power through the dark black corridors of the KGB, you know, the Russian intelligence and security services. And, you know, his job 
uh, back then when he first joined was to, you know, basically find ways of recruiting assets through uh, basically intimidation, blackmail, you know, setting up sting operations for Western business people or politicians, you know, who came his way in the 1970s in uh, the Soviet Union. He was also stationed uh, abroad in Dresden in East Germany to work with the Stasi on similar uh, you know, dirty tricks, you know, trying to kind of figure out how to undermine NATO and uh, and the West at that point, but also to steal secrets and, you know, a whole host of, uh, of other activities. The KGB has always been in the business of, uh, and their successor organizations, of intimidation and uh, trying to strike fear in, in those that they encounter, including their own operatives. And as always, you know, kind of been looking for novel ways to gain people's attention. And during the height of the Cold War, you know, part of the game was just to engage with the Western security services as much as possible in, you know, kind of a, a almost a, a sort of form of a video game of mortal combat, you know, just kind of a proving ground to show that they were better than anyone else. And they've long used things like poison, novel uh, agents of all kinds of kinds to assassinate people. I mean, we've, we've forgotten about Georgi Markov, the Bulgarian who got a ricin pellet stuck in his back of his leg on London Bridge with an umbrella. You know, the more gruesome and devious, you know, there's no um, surprise that um, Fleming, uh, you know, started to model some of the James Bond characters off, you know, Soviet spies because they were pretty inventive. You know, I mean, you didn't have to make this stuff up because they were doing these kinds of things. So sadly, Havana syndrome, what we think is maybe radio waves rather than something radioactive, but that doesn't stop them from using... I, I meant polonium. to say radio waves. Yeah, I know I'm what you sorry. meant, but I mean, you were obviously also thinking about polonium, you know, where they used a radioactive substance, you know, the first dirty bomb dropped in people's tea, you know, kind of all in the tea of uh, Litvinenko, a former uh, Russian spy in London, you know, but spreading traces of polonium all the way around London, every place that the poor man had been. And then Novichok, uh, uh, an outlawed... Uh, weapons-grade nerve agent uh, smeared on the door handle of uh, Yuri Skripal and uh, in his house and poisoning himself and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury. I mean, this is the kind of thing that they do. So, so unfortunately, Havana syndrome, the use of radio waves, what we, you know, we think it is, we know that they've had uh, some interest in this in the past, it fits into this pattern because often they just want to hurt. Uh, they want to intimidate, they want to basically engender fear. And this ties into, you know, the, the first part of your question about cyber attacks and ransomware attacks. Ransomware attacks fall into that same category of, you know, basically intimidating and fear and also gamesmanship. Because, I mean, look what the ransomware attacks are targeted against, hospitals, you know, for one. They're not just against banks and pipelines, which also could have, you know, some major knock-on effects in systems, but they're meant to intimidate uh, people strike fear into people they're meant to harm. I mean, there have been people in these ransomware attacks in hospitals who haven't had their surgeries, you know, and are you know, likely to die as a result of, you know, something that's happened to them as a result of that. In the uh, old days, the KGB, when Putin joined, there were lots of criminal groups that were kind of not directly run by the KGB, but condoned, given a nod to and encouraged not to do things at home in their turf, but to do things abroad. Criminal groups that, you know, would, um, you know, lure people in through prostitution, trafficking, you know, this kind of thing, drugs, and that they would be useful and used. It doesn't mean to say, though, that Putin is basically in control of all of these. There's a very kind of expansive network uh, of people and a delegation of authority. And it may well be that some of them he can't rein in, but he certainly could be sending out a message across the system to cease and do this. That's for sure. Some of the other cyber attacks, though, are directly basically at the hands of 
Russian government entities, particularly the military intelligence uh, agency, the GRU. And they've been behind a lot of the assassinations and poisoning as well. So what we have in the person of Vladimir Putin as somebody who, as I said, rose to power through the KGB, is that dirty tricks, assassinations, and all of these things are part of his statecraft. As far as he's concerned, they are part of the toolbox. Whereas in other societies like our own, there's more checks and balances on this. You don't have the secret police, uh, you know, at least for now, in charge of uh, in charge of the state. So we're dealing with, you know, somebody who just sees these things as a matter of course, is prepared to be ruthless, and you know, and play as dirty as possible to get ahead and get what he wants. So, Fiona, you you spent two years in the Trump White House as, uh, I think, senior director for European and Russian affairs. And as such, you had a kind of a front row view of the relationship between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, a subject of great fascination and concern for the four years that Donald Trump was president. So you write a lot in your book about uh, how these two figures are similar I'd like you to tell us tell us about that, you know, how they are different. And also, I think you have a little bit of a different take from the sort of conventional wisdom that, that Donald Trump, that it was rooted in his desire for collusion and to help the Russians. Uh, I think you think it's rooted in something, something a little bit different. But tell us about the relationship, the similarities, the differences and, and the rest of it. Yeah, and I think that that third question that you've raised about, you know, kind of what was that relationship between Trump and Putin rooted in actually comes out of the... Uh, answers to the first two um, questions. Because there were a lot of superficial and really disturbing similarities between Trump and Putin, notwithstanding the fact that you can't really kind of uh, put you know, Russia and the United States into the same you know, governance bracket. Uh, our histories are very different. The whole systems are very different. And of course, you know, Putin coming up through the backdoors the KGB through the state is a very different animal from Donald Trump, who's a total wildcard candidate, outsider. He hijacks uh, the Republican Party, and then as a result of that, the political system, but he's totally from outside. He doesn't even want to rule, you know, using the state apparatus, which is actually a distinct difference with Putin. But both Putin and Trump believe in the power of their respective presidencies, and they don't believe in any intermediaries, any representative entities of government. Both of them, in effect, don't have a political party. And I mean that in the case of Trump, of course, you know, he's the leader of the Republican Party, but he was elected by the population, not by the Republican Party themselves. He was not their choice of candidate. I mean, in a way, I mean, he emerges because of a beauty or personality contest out of 17 others who are the conventional, you know, basically candidates of the Republican Party who have been in all kinds of governance positions, you know, for example. Putin was selected by Boris Yeltsin, having already served as a deputy prime minister, the head of the KGB uh, or the FSB, its uh, successor agency, uh, uh, and then some other you know kind of roles after his kind of KGB uh, career. So both of them, you know, are they just it's themselves public opinion, this kind of popularity polling. Because, you know, Trump has just basically there is no real Republican Party, it's just my Republican Party, the Republican Party of, of Donald Trump. And they're also, you know, very much focused on being and staying in power and the manipulation of the electoral systems around them as a result of that. I also saw, you know, kind of both uh, Trump and Putin playing to nostalgia. You know, both of them are saying, I'm going to make my country great again. You know, they come in, come in after periods of dislocation, feeding on people's grievances, presenting themselves as men of the people. Uh, you know, figuring out how to talk to people, to kind of manipulate people, to get them all kind of geared up. They're both 
political performers and showmen. I mean, Trump is obviously more evidently that by being a reality TV personality and a celebrity businessman. And, you know, basically, I think a lot of the votes that came to him were because of those performances in the entertainment capacity. But Putin's done a lot of this as well. I mean, we can all think of all of these escapades of Putin that he used to engage in, the bare-chested, you know, riding on a horse or swimming, you know, uh, basically the butterfly, feats of strength across Siberian uh, rivers, you know, I think of him you know, running around with his aviator sunglasses, you know, looking like the a figure out of a James Bond uh, movie, flying in an electrolyte with, um, you know, basically endangered crayons. That was a that was a slightly weird one. Diving to the bottom of the sea, deep sea diver to put him in a, uh, pick up an amphora from the bottom of uh, the Black Sea. Johnny turned out to be about six feet deep. But anyway, it's all part of the, the show. You know, so you, you think about Putin and all these many guys as there are calendars about Putin, posters of Putin, T-shirts of Putin. People keep sending me these as gifts. And I wish they'd stop. The one piece that I have that's actually not on the shelf right behind me, but further on is the Putin toilet paper, you know, that um, somebody <laughs> sent me as well. So, you know, Putin's image is... How can we get some? everything you can think of. Well, I'm sure you can all do it online. Everything's usually online these days. I'm sure that you can get a whole box of it, you know, if you would like. But the point is that both Putin and Trump are, are iconic figures. You know, we may not, you know, kind of see that's positive, but I mean, they're, they're both out there about the image and the, and the cultivation of the image. The big differences are very telling. I just mentioned that Putin is part of the state and he rules through the state. He has control of the state and he rose up, you know, through the state. Trump doesn't want anything to do with the state. He basically wants to dismantle the state, you know, with Steve Bannon's idea of, you know, getting rid of uh, the US state. He wants to rule just directly through the people. Trump also wants to stay in power indefinitely. He said he's never left. I mean, we're in this constitutional crisis right now because he refuses to accept that Joe Biden was elected in November 2020. He has never conceded the election. Putin, you know, has kind of been a bit more subtle about this. I mean, he continuously uh, amends the constitution so that he can keep on staying in power. He's got another, you know, 16 years or more, 15 years on the clock now, until 2036. And, you know, has manipulated in different ways, but he doesn't want to repudiate the state and the state apparatus. And Putin is also less divisive than Trump. Putin is super divisive overseas and exploits everything that he can get his hands on to, you know, discredit the West. Trump is both divisive overseas and especially at home where he goes after everybody apart from his base. So he's trying to rule from a kind of a minority position and, you know, kind of adapt the electoral system to that. Putin also has a minority position in terms of his overall popularity, but he's trying to kind of unify as big a base behind him as possible by playing to, you know, things that bring in a larger group of people rather than a smaller and smaller group of people. And But it's in that peculiarities of Vladimir Putin, the strongman leader, the president who seems to have unbridled power, the man who came in as a badass from the KGB with his aviator sunglasses and this celebrity and this iconic vision that I really kind of see the, the roots of Trump's attraction. Trump looks at Putin and he thinks his Trump Putin is everything that he thinks he himself is or that he wants to be, which is super rich, super powerful, and you know, kind of super famous. And if you remember back to when Trump had the infamous, you know, dreadful press conference at Helsinki, and he said, I have Vladimir Putin standing right next to me, and he's been very strong and very powerful in his denial about what happened in 2016. Those were the two trigger words, you know, certainly for me in watching this. 
because Trump is always attracted to people who he thinks are strong, strong men, rather than really- You call it autocratic envy. Autocratic envy and powerful. And his idea of power is all wrapped up in wealth, celebrity, and not having any checks and balances on you know your position. I just have to add this because from your book, I think the chapter is called The Agony of Helsinki or something like that. And you were there as you, you were like the NSC note taker during that infamous press conference. And you write that uh, you said, I, I assume in jest that you wanted to end the whole thing by throwing a fit or faking a seizure or hurling yourself backwards into the journalists behind you. That was just that, such a that great image. That was exactly the, the passage that I had picked <laughs> yeah. out and I was going to ask. I, I love I mean, that. <laughs> yeah, I had that feeling of Deborah Burke. Sorry, Victoria. I had that feeling of Deborah Burke, so that infamous, you know, that everybody, you know, kind of saw in real time because they saw her face. You couldn't see my face because the, the photographers were all behind me and the cameras. But when, you know, Trump talks about injecting bleach, and, you know, and, and she just has this look. And I had that same look. And, you know, I watched her eyes go backwards and forwards. I thought, is she looking for the fire alarm? Because, you know, that, uh, that <laughs> would also have been, you know, my thoughts as well. I thought, how can I stop this? Oh, God, what a disaster. And a personal disaster for him, because what a humiliation. But a massive national disaster, uh, you know, for, for, for the rest of us, for the United States. It feels like for the last four years plus, we've been trying to understand the relationship between the United States and Russia through the Trump-Putin lens. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, now that Trump is out of power, have we learned anything? Are we better able now to deal with exactly the sort of tools that Putin is deploying against the United States? Well, we've learned a lot, but I don't think we're better positions right now, just in terms of our domestic politics. I mean, I think we, we could be. And I think, you know, what we've had over the last, you know, several weeks on Capitol Hill, for example, in terms of Francis Hogan, the whistleblower for Facebook coming forward and, you know, describing, you know, the problems of social media, the algorithms, you know, the need for regulation and some of uh, the you know, steps forward there would actually help us deal with Putin differently. And the reason I'm saying that is because it's not just a question of, you know, the old stuff of superpower confrontation, nuclear missiles and, you know, where they're stationed and who might, you know, kind of contemplate a first strike and how we then deal with arms control and those ongoing negotiations or geopolitical rivalry, you know, dividing up Europe. We're not doing that anymore. At least we don't want to do that. I mean, the Russians, you know, still have <laughs> quite a bit of malice of forethought towards some of their neighbours, but we, we're not engaging in that. But what the Russians uh, and, and Putin are most focused on, which is a sort of an insidious, different kind of threat, is our soft underbelly, our vulnerabilities in our domestic politics. And one of the portals for entry is social media. Because we know that in 2016, we've learned a lot about that right now. It wasn't just the hack and release of Hillary Clinton's emails, you know, the use of WikiLeaks, uh, you know, for the DNC emails, you know, Donald Trump you know, being very willing to use all of that, you know, purloined and stolen uh, email material and calling out for Russia to, you know, kind of release the 70,000 emails. What was most problematic was the uh, invention of personas on the internet or the use of bots uh, and Twitter to amplify our own discord. So, I mean, the Russians were kind of jumping into our debates and pouring fuel on the fire. And they were taking advantage of those algorithms. They didn't invent Facebook. They certainly didn't invent Twitter. They didn't invent the internet. We all know that Al Gore did that. You know, so basically, you know, they're just trying to take advantage 
of what they've got. And they're doing the same things they've always done since the 1920s and 30s, since the Bolshevik Revolution. You could even go back to the Russian Empire when they used to spread rumours around, you know, come over here, I've got something to tell you, you know, on the outer ridges of the empires. They've been uh, using propaganda. They've been using rumour and innuendo. They've been using compromising material. They've been trying to influence all of our politics, but they hit the pay dirt with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and all the different ways in which algorithms push people towards outrage and division and polarization because Putin knows how to divide and conquer. He might want to unify at home, but he wants to divide abroad, as I said before. So the more that we can try to take uh, some action to address these kinds of problems that we have, you know, obviously we've got to also tackle ransomware and other kinds of cyber attacks to shore up our vulnerabilities and the kind of holes in our systems the more that we can push back. But it's difficult because I think we know this, but our politics is still focused on polarization, partisan infighting and outrage. I mean, many of our own politicians have become showmen in the style of Trump or show women. I'm um, thinking about you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who if she was in Russia would fit in you know, quite well with the Russian Duma, where a lot of people are just out there to shout and draw attention to themselves, you know, actually underscoring Putin's point that politics is, and in his view and democracy is all about who pays the most and who shouts the loudest. Well, just building on that, Fiona, because you make the case in your book that I think you say uh, we in America are much more like Russia than we would care to admit, and that some of the many of the kind of dark forces that are driving Russia onto the course that, that it's on um, are also driving us onto the path that we're on. Talk about that a little bit. What do you mean? Well, a lot of this is, look, is rooted in the corruption and the flows of uh, of big money. Uh, we just had all the revelations in the Pandora Papers, you know, for example, you know, showing about the way that people stash an awful lot of money here in the United States, um, ill-gotten gains from you know, various other countries. I was personally quite shocked to find that South Dakota, of all places, you know, kind of was one of uh, the major centers of um, shell uh, companies. I mean, you know, obviously, Delaware, Miami, you know, all kinds of New York, you know, you name it. I'd never thought of South Dakota. It's my family from South Dakota. You know, I think of corn and pheasant hunting and other things. I don't think of shell companies, you know, kind of out there in, you know, in my, uh, you know, kind of extended family farm area, for example. But, you know, I guess it's entrepreneurial. But the point um, uh, of all of this is that our system has become very corrupted as well. We have, you know, we know about all the corruption of finance scandals. We have the uh, Southern District of New York, you know, basically tracking a whole load of those down right now. We know that with the advent of, uh, of super PACs, political action committees, that people can find ways of basically entering the system behind the covers of others. You know, there are lots of reverberations from, you know, the events uh, surrounding the first uh, impeachment trial with the Ukrainian Americans and their illegal finance contributions uh, to uh, elections, uh, the illegal election, election contributions that are being investigated, you know, right now. There are many uh, of, of, of people from in, within our political system who are the lobbyists for foreign countries and for foreign entities. You know, I describe in the book how I got crosswise with some of them, you know, former congressmen, former, you know, security officials who become foreign agents uh, and in fact as lobbyists and representatives for foreign countries, including for our adversaries. And, and this is across the board in many other societies. I mean, you know, perhaps, um, you know, some more shocking things are happening in the United Kingdom. You know, for example, we've just in this, you know, last week or so heard about the FBI raiding the uh, Washington DC home of Oleg Deripaska, one of uh, the oligarchs close to the Kremlin. Well, George Osborne, the former 
chancellor, um, uh, the head of the you know, treasury in the United Kingdom, has joined Deripaska's business. And Deripaska is somebody who was sanctioned by the United States. We had, you know, Gerhard Schroeder, the former chancellor of Germany, joining the board of Gazprom, the, you know, the, the German, uh, the Russian uh, gas company. We have so many instances of that here in the United States as well. And people are aware of it. I should point out that, yeah, that, go ahead. that Christopher Steele, the you know the Steele dossier, was working for Deripaska's lawyers well, in the I, UK. Yes. I, I yeah, wasn't going to bring that one up because you know, there's still a whole sort of scandals you know around all of this too. But that's my point. I mean, I'm myself really shocked by former you know high-ranking officials from the U.S. government and at Capitol Hill and elsewhere who all had security clearances that frankly should know better who were then later on the payrolls of, you know, major companies. We had um, Lieberman, Senate, former Senator Lieberman, on, you know, the board, and we might still be, of, you know, one of the Chinese telecommunications companies at a time when we're greatly concerned about, you know, the influence of China in our telecommunications and other, and other sectors. So this is, you know, Daniel, exactly the problem, you know, that we're worrying about. That's where we have become much uh, closer to somewhere like Russia, where the whole system is greased by corruption, by private interests, and you know, where people say that the people who run Russia are the same people who own it, or the people who own Russia are the people who run it. And you know, we're getting ourselves in that system too. We saw under the previous administration, not just you know Trump deciding to put his daughter and son-in-law as special advisors in the White House, but the appointment of cronies, you know, throughout uh, the, well, the system. Uh, on that, there there are two episodes in the book which were really um, <laughs> delicious, which I'd like. I don't know, delicious is not the right word, but fascinating, which I'd like you to talk about. You know, and this gets to the you know what it was like to work in the crazy town of the Trump White House. Um, you talk about a call you get from Rich Grinnell, who at the time was the U.S. Trump appointed U.S. ambassador to Germany. Later, of course, acting director of national intelligence, where he calls you. He wants something at some meeting. He thinks you're holding it up, and he berates you. And suggests talks to you like you're somehow, you know, hired help hands who are there to sort of assist him rather than, you know, broadly the U.S. national interest. Tell us about that phone call that you got from Grinnell. Yeah, well, that was probably one of the most memorable of many similar phone calls, you know, that were from others as well. But it was memorable just because, you know, I, I, I didn't even have time to take a breath. Uh, you know, to try to explain the situation before he was right on the attack. And that was, you know, sadly emblematic of, you know, many of uh, similar kind of events and interactions in and around Trump himself. He was also Trump, you know, someone who was quick to attack or unleash the attack dogs if, if something wasn't going immediately his way. And this, you know, particular incident, you know, was really quite trivial. Ambassador Grinnell had wanted, you know, to uh, have a meeting or set up a meeting between my boss then, um, Ambassador Bolton, the national security advisor and a German politician uh, that he you know, particularly favored, but he was just trying to do this directly. And Ambassador Bolton, having also served in the State Department and you know, being at the United Nations, wanted to do make sure this was done by diplomatic protocol. I know Ambassador Bolton isn't always assumed to be you know, the most diplomatic, but he actually <laughs> you know, he's hiding behind you know, kind of this facade because he actually is you know, very much a stickler for diplomatic protocol and you know, for kind of doing things the right way. So he wanted to make sure that the embassy in uh, Washington, D.C., the German embassy, was already informed of this and uh, instructed 
myself to you know get one of our colleagues to go back and uh, check in on this. Ambassador Grinella got wind of this and just went ballistic essentially. And, you know, kind of before I could even say anything, explain the situation was already threatening me with, you know, all kinds of unpleasant things. And precisely that, just saying, look, who are you? Who do you think you are? You know, kind of you're just done here to be, you know, kind of basically the help and to push things around. And when I say as the, you know, kind of newly, uh, you know, Senate confirmed ambassador jump, I expect you to jump. You know, so I related out in the book. And I was so actually taken aback by all this, you know, I was kind of furiously writing notes because, you know, immediately this was going to be a major problem. It was just me blew it up. It was kind of like going to nuclear, you know, before I'd even opened my mouth and everything that I said, it got worse. So, of course, I had to kind of go back and explain all of this to, you know, Ambassador Bolton and to everyone else, you know, that what had just happened, because, you know, it was indicative again as well, how people derived their authority directly from Trump. They didn't care at all about, you know, kind of any of the procedural issues. It was all just, you know, I have license to, you know, basically do what I want, say what I want and get other people to do what I tell them to do. Reading about the, the two years that you spent in the Trump White House is uh, is a kind of difficult. It, it was clearly not a very pleasant experience. It was uh, for you. I'm curious, do you do you regret going into the White House or to put it another way? The American politics is full of comparable would be, you know, populist authoritarians. What advice would you give to someone who is a, a kind of a policy wonk who's thinking about going to work for one of those people? Yeah, I definitely give them the advice that I should have heeded myself, although I'd been you know, advised by many people not to do it. I mean, I, I thought that it was um, something that was worth doing. I don't have any regrets because of the national security imperative and what the Russians are up to. You know, I went in there you know, focused on what I could possibly do about, you know, the Russian intervention in our election and trying to see how I could work with others to try to stop that from happening. What I wish I had done is a lot more homework on some of these assorted people around, um, you know, Trump and in the White House, because sometimes I'd meet them, I had no idea who they were. I mean, some of that kind of came out in my testimony where I was asked questions about people. And I was like, who's that? <laughs> I'm not really very sure. And I, you know, kind of was self-focused on trying to understand who's who in the Kremlin or who's who in all of the European capitals, all the kind of counterparts. What are they all doing with each other? You know, what's the main point in here? But often I wasn't even sure of who, you know, the person that I was encountering from the Trump circle was, how they'd come to be there, you know, kind of all the kind of issues that were, you know, their motivating uh, drivers and who was behind them and backing them. So I kind of wandered in, you know, basically to a no man's land, you know, full with landmines without, you know, doing a proper scouting of the terrain. I, you know, I was pretty savvy on what was going on, you know, in you know, the places and not savvy at all about some of the things that were going on just across the West Executive Avenue in the White House itself. So I just I got a rude awakening. So I would advise to people, you know, if you are a... Uh, focus on policy and national security. Do your other homework about, you know, who's out there. Talk about friendly fire. You know, you kind of, uh, half the time I was trying to figure out in those first few months, where was this kind of coming from? Another unpleasant experience you had was with a former member of Congress, Connie Mack, who, you know, as you were symptom of the phenomenon you were just explaining, goes to work as a lobbyist for Hungary's Orban. And he comes after you. Explain that and and what flowed from that, the wild conspiracy theories about Soros and, and you know, 
uh, other related matters that emerged from your clash with Connie Mack? Well, this is also one of those of not doing my homework. I'd heard of his father, which obviously is the same name. And I knew that his father, you know, was obviously from this kind of storied baseball dynasty. I'd actually, you know, remember that because of a very unusual name. But I had no idea about Connie Mack, the son. And I had, you know, I've never met him. I've still never met him. Um, and, you know, I was first alerted to the fact that something was afoot because some people from the vice president's office came and told me that Connie Mack had come into their office working as a lobbyist, as you said, for the Hungarian government and for Prime Minister Viktor Orban and just lambasted me and said I should be sacked because I was undermining the president, but also the entire country of Hungary. And I'd, I'd barely been on the job. And I thought, what? What am I doing? I don't understand this. The next thing, I was all over InfoWars. Now, when I first appeared on InfoWars, Alex Jones and Roger Stone and others, you know, talking about me, I, I assumed immediately it was the Russians. <laughs> How, how, how innocent was I, naive there, there? Because, you know, I've been the target of many Russian conspiracy theories. There's been all kinds of stuff out on me on the internet for years, you know, as a prominent Russian uh, specialist. And I'd been national intelligence officer before. So, you know, I've been, you know, kind of thoroughly uh, and utterly, you know, out there with all kinds of things I couldn't possibly be doing at the same time. So I assumed this was just more of the Russians. And then I was shocked to find out that this was Connie Mack, that those two things were related. And I thought, what have I done to the Hungarians? You know, so basically what had happened was, you know, Pony Mack had tried to set up a very early meeting between President Trump and Prime Minister Orban, being pretty convinced that the two of them would get along famously. And this meeting for Prime Minister Orban had not been first out of the gate uh, for uh, President Trump. So Mack assumed that somebody was blocking it. He goes online, he looks up all of the people, it seems to have to be somebody in the White House, he finds me. And he finds my CV, I mean, I'm pretty transparent, there's all kinds of things, you know, there online. And he discovers that, you know, one point I'd been on the advisory board for several projects related to the Open Society Institute, George Soros's uh, enterprises. And so that's it. He decides that I am basically an agent of George Soros. And I'm sure, you know, kind of listens to scratching their head. Well, why? Because George Soros had become the subject of a deliberately fabricated political, um, you know, kind of action. Basically, the substance of a conspiracy theory that had been devised to help Viktor Orban secure the prime ministership in Hungary in the first instance. Prime Minister Orban's team thought that he needed a kind of a, an enemy to kind of rail against, to kind of mobilize people against. They picked George Soros, a Hungarian Jew whose family had fled the, the Holocaust, and who at one point had actually given a fellowship to um, Viktor Orban early on in his career. And so the story goes that he turned against Viktor Orban and he was now trying to control everything that was going on in Hungary, you know, from afar. And I was George Soros's agent because I'd been on the advisory board of the Central Asia University in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, very far away from Hungary. But I'd, you know, uh, appeared on, you know, various uh, different advisory boards. And that I was being directed by George Soros to undermine Viktor Orban, but also undermine the US president, because I was trying to somehow keep them both apart. And this led to death threats, you know, kind of all kinds of crazy stuff on the internet, and all kinds of revelations that I was a Soros mole along with H.R. McMaster, who was then the uh, national security advisor and everyone else. And I discovered that this in a whole conspiracy about uh, George Soros um, had also been made up by a couple of um, New York uh, political operatives. There's a long article written about it in The Atlantic, who just, you know, thought this was just a kind of a great device uh, for politics. It was now being morphed into repurposed for Trump as well. 
So this is how George Soros becomes kind of Trump's enemy too, because it was kind of very useful for Victor Orban. What struck me about this is it's not unlike the series of events that led to your brief period of, uh, of fame, notoriety in the Ukraine scandal. And, that, and your account of how of the origin of that is so fascinating as well, that basically these two guys, Parnas and Freeman, are after another ambassador, uh, Yovanovitch, in Ukraine. Uh, they think she's uh, interfering with their business interests, and they basically set the whole affair in motion. Exactly. It's the same thing. I mean, they managed to get themselves some airtime with Trump, first to first time. Because they're, they're donors. At, uh, Parnas and uh, Freeman, yeah. They're working with Rudy Giuliani, and they both have, uh, and all of them have some business interests. They think that um, uh, Ambassador Ivanovich is somehow blocking one of their ventures in Ukraine, although it's not kind of apparent how or why she would be. But certainly the US Embassy in Kiev is trying to take a stance against corruption and, you know, kind of all kinds of malfeasance, you know, behind the scenes. And so they basically tell Trump at a, a donor dinner in uh, International Hotel in Washington, D.C., that the ambassador's out to get him. They just tell a complete and as a bold-faced lie to him, saying she's some holdover from the Clinton administration, that she won't acknowledge that he's the president, she won't put his picture up in the embassy, and this is just BS. And that, you know, she's basically going around Kiev telling everybody he's going to be impeached. And Trump immediately responds with, get rid of her, you know, kind of get her out of here, because he, he believes these guys because they're donors. They're in his, you know, kind of circle. They're, they're affiliated with Rudy Giuliani. And that's it. He just wants done with um, uh, Masha Ivanovich, which is exactly what I think Connie Mack thought would happen to me when he goes and complains to the vice president stuff, that I would just be removed. It wouldn't have, of course, paved the way for Orban's meeting with um, President Trump because I wasn't blocking it. You know, but you know, and then in the case of uh, the removal of Masha Ivanovich, that leads uh, Batsy Ivanovich inexorably, you know, over a period of time from that dinner, which happened sometime I think around in April 2018, and the video of it is actually on 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 the air on the internet, to her removal, you know, a whole year later in May of 2019, and then from there to the impeachment trial because it's right. that precipitating factor that gets her into big trouble. So. You had an up-close-and-personal look at the general foreign policy lunacy of the United States over the course of the last four years. But ultimately, your book concludes, I, I think, I hope, that it's it's driven or it's empowered by some fundamental failings about America's domestic politics and domestic situation. So I'm sort of curious whether or not you think we're, we're doomed to a kind of an endless loop of populist strongmen trying to seize power in the United States or whether or not there are elements to our, our kind of current domestic politics that could be fixed or altered in a way that would save us from this loop? Well, we're not doomed unless we all just stand by and kind of watch with, you know, kind of no action taken, you know, kind of any kind of apathy on all of our part, you know, will certainly doom us because, you know, there are 330 million of us here in the United States. We've all got agency. The preamble of the Constitution is, you know, we the people. And, you know, although our politics over time has morphed into this fetishization of the person of the president and the presidency, you know, even away from the thinking about the executive branch, there are still lots of ways for us to make our voices heard. So, you know, we're, we're only doomed if we don't take action. I think, you know, part of our problem right now is that the politics is stuck at the top. I mean, we need on, you know, Capitol Hill right now, 
people to wake up and agree and realize what is happening here. I think uh, President Biden gets it, um, but you know he's also a prisoner of his own party. And there are members of the Democratic Party right now who are you know, fighting out for their own agendas. And certainly in the Republican Party, an awful lot of people have forgotten that there was a Republican Party, that they're members of it, that they've got a you know, cohesive, coherent platform, and that all of they are is kind of focused on the personality cult of Trump because he's a bully and he's forcing them you know, in that direction. Well, they could stand up for themselves. They could you know, be uh, reframing all of this. And you know, I hope that as I and others speak out that some of them might wake up and stand up for this. But an awful lot of the rest of us, we can get mobilized. You know, we can go out there and try to push back against efforts to, you know, get rid of the independent oversight of our elections, efforts to, you know, kind of roll back voting uh, rights, uh, efforts, you know, to kind of redistrict and, you know, kind of gerrymander, you know, kind of people out of their ability to have their, their voice heard. There's a lot of public private action that can be taken. Big corporations can stand up, you know, they already have on some of these issues. So I think there's, you know, different pressure points in the system that we can bring to bear, but we have to kind of get engaged. Look, the media, you know, all these kind of discussions that we're having now, you know, calling out Facebook and Twitter. I mean, Facebook and Twitter eventually cut Trump off. You know, there are many, you know, things that we can actually do here. We've just got to get our act into, <laughs> I was going to say our act into gear, but, you know, there you go. We've got to get ourselves into action here. We've got to do that as well, because... The time is now and we're running out of it. And as I said, passivity and apathy and standing by and hoping somebody else is going to do something isn't an option. And it doesn't have to be partisan. You know, I've had people saying, oh, you've chosen a side. Well, I've chosen the side of America and democracy. You know, kind of, I think we've all got that side, right? And, you know, if, if there is a group of people who define themselves as Republicans or red, you know, representatives who are, you know, basically trying to sell U.S. democracy down the river, then, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm going to be on the other side of that. And I think, you know, everybody else should be too. Just before we go, I mean, one thing we didn't get a chance to ask you about is the interesting and intriguing title of your book, There Is Nothing For You Here, which is a quote from your father, who was uh, talking about the place that you come from, which was this depressed coal coal mining area in, in the northeast of England. And what's kind of unique about your story is that it reflects some of the major kind of economic and social trends of our of our time, you know, this post-industrial decline, economic decline, cultural despair, which of course has led to the rise of, of populist politics. So I, I'm just uh, curious, could you just talk a little bit about how your own upbringing in this part of, of England shaped your views of this moment in history? I think their audience would be interested in hearing that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I grew up, as you said, in this kind of environment where all of these things were happening and people really were kind of stirring despair and hopelessness in the face. Uh, basically, there were no prospects for jobs. 90% of uh, kids leaving school in the year that I left school had nothing else to go on to. Some of them took months and years to find their first job. Uh, and, you know, to then get on with their lives. And some of them, you know, my friends back at home have never, you know, been able to kind of get any kind of traction in the workplace. You know, I'm going to be 56 and very shortly. And so, you know, some of my counterparts from school are still, you know, kind of trying to make that first entry point into the economy when a handful of them are. And that's the kind of experience that really breeds frustration and anger, also apathy, uh, you know, because people are saying, well, gosh, the system never works. I can't affect anything. I'm not really not going to do anything. What changed my life was the opportunity to go to university. 
And I was able to go to university because there were grants available for low income first, you know, kind of in your family going to college people, you know, back in that period of the 1980s. So I had an opportunity that wasn't open to everyone else. You know, I also graduated without any educational debt. I mean, my educational pursuits didn't drag me down, they propelled me forward. And education in the United States right now has become the dividing line in our politics. I mean, today, which is, again, bizarre if you think back to the past, you're more likely to vote Republican and vote for Donald Trump if you only have a high school education. I mean, that is bizarre because, you know, as I was growing up, the most, all the aspirations of people around me were to get educated in some fashion, right? Not to go to an elite school, but, you know, to have a community college, to get skills and qualifications, get an apprenticeship, which is also an education, you know, to get a job. Everybody wanted, you know, to something better because they knew that the economy was leaving them behind, society was leaving behind, and they had no voice in politics as a result. We've blocked off educational pathways. That feeds into populism in other ways as well, because, you know, if you haven't got an educational capacity, not only do you feel alienated from all the people who do and are now dominating politics, but you don't really kind of believe the information, you know, that you're being presented with. You don't have really trust in the establishment because you also don't really know how to read things, how to analyze them. And that's, you know, kind of part of a basic education, not just a civic education, but a more, you know, liberal arts education based on uh, critical thinking. So I think, you know, that those experiences growing up, because I saw all of this, I saw, you know, how people in my own family, you know, got pulled towards populist or even extremist movements. I've seen that, you know, happening here in the United States as well. And I've also seen how important education in all kinds of forms is. And we have to make that open to people. So part of the antidote to all of this, and of course, it's not going to happen, you know, very quickly, is to really kind of open up. Uh, education. And I do think that there's on Capitol Hill right now in that infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill, the ideas of expanding out, you know, pre-K all the way through education to community college is pretty vital. I know that we've got some of our members of Congress and Senate saying we've got to pair all of this back, but we're doing the country a disservice if we don't take that head on. This is an investment in all of our futures. It's not just individuals, you know, kind of getting ahead. Open up education, close the opportunity gap. Exactly. That's kind of one of the really big uh, ways of doing it. And we also, we're hitting another trans- transformation in the economy, right? I mean, basically, I was talking about the 1980s when heavy industry and mass manufacturing was reaching its end. We're moving into the knowledge economy, uh, more innovation, the modernization. Well, we're now moving into the economy driven by artificial intelligence and also what we hope to be a green technological revolution. So all the people who are in this phase of the economy are going to have to be retrained again and retraining that's education to help them to move ahead and find jobs in a new environment. So another of those big inflection points. So that's the only reason that where America is going to be able to move forward. We don't want to get stuck in the past and we don't have more people feeling left behind because that's will then keep on fueling these cycles of populist leaders, you know, from here on on. Well, Fiona, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, it's um, the, the book is a, a great read, not just about your personal story, which it is, about what happened in the Trump years, but also a prescription for the future. It's called There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. It's really been a pleasure.